At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. The end of the year market rally. The Fed says rate cuts are coming. But wait, when? Kevin Warsh translates Fed speak for us. The goods economy, the economy that's around widgets, that economy's in recession. The services economy is in an expansion, and the government economy is in a boom. Donald Trump blocked from the presidential ballot in Colorado. If he was involved in insurrection, by the way, it's right there in the Constitution. This was the 14th Amendment to the Constitution that was put in place after after the Civil War. It's never been tested by the Supreme Court. It's never been enforced. And FedEx falls on weaker revenue guidance. Rite Aid's facial recognition out the door. I might be embarrassed if I was buying, like, I don't know, kale or something. But drugstores just should not be a place where people are watching what you're doing. Plus, billionaires, not so beloved. CNBC's Steve Leisman with data on the likability of our nation's wealthiest. You could be loved, rich, or famous, but you can't be all three unless maybe you're, I don't know, Taylor Swift. It's Wednesday, December 20th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm live from the NASDAQ stock market in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin, who are in uh, parts all over the place. Yes. Guys, it is good to have everybody back together. Kind of, kind of back. I mean, it's, it's good, yeah. but it's, it's kind of back. At least we're here on screen. Yeah, we are. We're spamming the globe. We not, are. Not all of it. Tri-state area, at least. Some of it. Um, anyway, it, it is good to be here with everybody and actually have all three of us here on screen together. Yes. To the court decision that may shake up the 2024 presidential election, if it hasn't already, Colorado's Supreme Court ruling that former President Trump's candidacy in the state's primary next year prohibited on constitutional grounds. The ruling coming from a provision of the 14th Amendment, which prohibits officers of the United States from holding office they've engaged in insurrection or rebellion. The Colorado High Court agreeing with a lower court ruling that President Trump incited and encouraged the use of violence on January 6, 2021. It overturned the lower court's ruling, finding that the president is an officer of the country that elected him and barred him uh, from being named to the Colorado primary ballot. Now, the court put its action on hold until January 4th to allow for further appeals. A spokesperson for the Trump campaign bashing the ruling and signaling that an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court was forthcoming. Republican presidential hopefuls weighing in on that decision. Vivek Ramaswamy uh, pledging to withdraw his name from the Colorado ballot himself uh, unless Trump's name is restored. Uh, let's show you some reaction, though, from Nikki Haley and Chris Christie from separate campaign events last night. I don't think Donald Trump needs to be president. I think I need to be president. I think that's good for the country. But I will beat him fair and square. We don't need to have judges making these decisions. We need voters to have to make these decisions. I do not believe Donald Trump should be prevented from being president of the United States by any court. I think he should be prevented from being president of the United States by the voters of this country. 
Meantime, Ron DeSantis criticizing the ruling in a post on X and said the U.S. Supreme Court should reverse that decision. Democratic candidate RFK Jr. posted on X that every American should be troubled by the court's decision to remove President Trump from that ballot and said it deprives the American people of their right to choose. So a lot of debate uh, happening. Uh, also, I think I saw the GOP, one of the official GOP accounts coming out and saying that effectively they would try to take the entire GOP off somehow off the ballot in Colorado and it would be, be they, everyone would be put on independently. I didn't, I didn't understand what they were suggesting, but of course, raising all sorts of uh, big issues. And then the question, of course, is do other states follow? Uh, what does the Supreme Court do? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's like 20 other states. These, uh, the, the four judges were all appointed by a Democratic um, governor. I, I, you, I don't know if there is a debate. I haven't seen a, even a single Democrat really say, yeah, it's a great decision and we, we applaud I, it. I think it's clear that uh, the Supreme Court will take this up. I, I think they're going to be forced to pretty quickly. Um, hopefully that happens. And by the way, it, it was a court with seven judges. The three four, three, four, and four were Democrats. Three who dissented said that, look, this is a situation where due process wasn't, wasn't given uh, precedence on this and it shouldn't happen. So I, I think the Supreme Court is going to take this up pretty quick. No doubt. Uh, and they're taking up it's other things. It's very interesting, though. Be yeah, go ahead. I mean, the Supreme Court's taking up the, uh, the, some other cases about whether Someone that, that has the powers of the presidency even has to deal with it. It's very bizarre. And, and then you're going to hear, I guarantee you, uh, even though you're not seeing a lot of people saying this is great. And I don't this probably like every other what looks to be a negative thing for Donald Trump turns out uh, that his poll numbers go up. Uh, you certainly have heard it, you know, postulated that. You probably shouldn't have one pres uh, presidential candidate able to use the power of the presidency to hurt his rival. And it just looks like this just starts, you know, feeling like that again. So I don't know how this could embolden his supporters. It's, I don't think it's going to go very far. But it's okay, not going to last. Let's just, but there's 20 other the, states. The, there's probably 20 other right, states but, that are doing this. But but this was not a move that was uh, put up no. by the by the I'm not Biden saying administration. It was. I'm not just saying to, it was, but it's uh, Democrats. Well, you it's just said it was by his rivals. Democratic governor, oh. de uh, de Democratic sure. appointees of of the Supreme Court and judges, unelected judges. So it's just it's going it's going well, to but, and then you're going to have unelected judges. You're going to have unelected judges the determining Supreme, uh, the Supreme Court appointed by Trump. And you know what the Supreme Court looks like. Right. If you are a constitutionalist and you do read through the Constitution and I, you, you would have to determine that that he was involved in insurrection. But if he was involved in insurrection, by the way, it's right there in the Constitution. So that's why due process. Debates. That's why right. due process that's, comes that's up. The this, was the 14th, this was the 14th Amendment to the Constitution that was put in place right. after after the Civil War. It's never been tested by the Supreme Court. It's never been enforced um, holistically by Congress, which is why you're looking back at. at but stuff at some that's point, if it's written into the anyway, and then yeah, there's it, states' but it rights. Is the, it is an there's a very interesting. Uh, there's a very interesting states' rights case to be made here which is, again, in the, in the sort of very unique, weird bedfellows thing going on. on. On the Republican side, typically everything is states' rights, and here you're going to have a state making this decision. So, But it's a state making a decision based on federal constitutional law, which um, right. why it, it'll I, definitely be a in, in, the, in the whole notion of whether he inspired 
this and, and caused the violence and definitely was behind it. That, that's a Rorschach test for, for you know, well, tribalism, it, where you are. And it's also... But again, that's the due process. That's the Fifth right. Amendment due process. That it's it's not going to... It's not... Yet, he's we'll, going to be on the ballot probably in, in, in every state. That's, that, that may be the scary thing. Cause the he, only thing I'll say is that at least this steps up this argument and makes it start happening now right. r- rather than later because this is an argument that was going to come later uh, regardless. So it's probably good to have the Supreme Court weighing in on some quickly rather than now rather but they're still you know they're still mad at the supreme court for for you know not counting all the hanging chads so we're gonna it's gonna be politicized we're gonna hear that too from how long ago was that was that really 23 of course look of course the supreme court's as political as it let's also be honest the supreme court's now as political political. as it's ever been I mean, they try and stay out of so, it, just like the Fed. I don't so know if you look at how the, the country's Earl, going to look at that. You don't, you, political right, it depends. You, you don't remember the Earl Warren. You don't remember the Earl Warren court. It, I don't know if it's is It depends. That's, once again, that's in the eye of the beholder too, whether it's as political as it's ever been. I mean, you don't want. You, you haven't argued for thirteen Supreme Court. You know, we don't want to add another four liberals, do we, Andrew? Would that make it fair? That's that's, that's not the answer. I don't it? know what the right answer is. I think <laughs> we. I think we. You, you won't just reject that out of I don't know what the right answer is when you have. There's too many conservatives, well, but there are too many conservatives right now. There's just no doubt about it, right? You know what I do know? <laughs> on, a rel- on a relative basis to the country and the way the country votes, yes. That's, oh, I, I think okay. that's, uh, right. if, you're just, if you're just measuring how the country, how the country fares and how the court, rep- the court does not on a holistic But this, represent- is, your opi- this, is, your, this is your opinion again. Yes. Okay. I mean, right. But I think it's empirical. Right. Everybody can... Well, I know. I think it's think, mathematical. You, you I think that, it's mathematical. You use based that on rain. You use concept. that rain thing. That, that if it's raining outside, and some people say it's not raining, there's a lot of nuance on, coming from both sides. This is empirical. Yeah, FedEx shares are falling this morning. If you want to check this out, earnings of three dollars and ninety-nine cents a share actually missed expectations of four dollars and eighteen cents. So it was a big miss. Revenue was just slightly lower than had been anticipated, and the company lowered its revenue forecast as weaker demand hit sales. FedEx is now expecting a low single-digit decline in revenue for the fiscal year. That would be down from a previous forecast of flat sales. And it said its express unit had a particularly tough quarter with lower demand as customers shifted to cheaper services. That stock this morning, this is a shocker too, down by almost 10%. 252.52 is the latest trade. Joining us right now for more on that report is Don Broughton. He is managing partner at Broughtner, Broughton Capital. And, and Don, this is a, a big, big decline for FedEx shares, down by almost 10 percent. Is what you heard from the company, uh, does it warrant that decline in the shares? Uh, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Look, the, FedEx just produced a 25 percent increase in earnings per share on a 3 percent decline in revenue, which is far better than what UPS reported the previous quarter. UPS reported a almost 47% decline in earnings on a 10% decline in revenue. So they're they're faring far better. Plus, they didn't change full-year guidance. I think that's important to note. Um, And it's also important to note, you know, Becky, you and I have talked about this over the years many times. Um, FedEx is is one of the most game stocks out there. It's seen as a bellwether for the global economy, the tech economy, the e-commerce economy, rightfully so. But it's moved, literally, it was $140 a share last September. It's, it's been as high as $280. Uh, just six weeks ago, the, the shares were $225. So, um, uh, so often we'll get people uh, in there betting on whether, what's going to happen. They're going to beat and raise. They're going to beat and raise. And then they do, and the stock falls back. So 
that's part of what's going on. The stock's just a little ahead of itself. Not only that, I think what's going on here is it's a restructuring at the company. And, and Don, a lot of people look at yeah. this stock, as you mentioned, as a bellwether for the economy. What is this telling us about the broader economy? What is this telling us about the reorganization that they're doing there? Well, if you look at the reorganization they're doing, they're making great progress. I mean, here's a company that is more than doubled its dividend in the last three years, and they are aggressively still have plenty of cash flow to aggressively repurchase shares. Um, and uh, oh, they just posted a better operating margin than UPS for the first time since UPS came public. Um, I mean, they're doing a great job with what they can have, and. Um, what you have to have happen now is you need to have international air freight volumes really begin to uh, pick up. And it looks like they're beginning to. November was a pretty good month. We saw Hong Kong volumes up um, 18% in November. So uh, it's, it's possible things are beginning to turn. And once they do, all that cost cutting could really power uh, some really strong earnings to the bottom line. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, a time of confusion? We're unpacking the market's response to the Federal Reserve's latest pivot with Kevin Warsh, a former Fed governor. They were saying the party is back on and markets took that seriously. What's fueling the market's party? They put the punch bowl back out. They told the teenagers they were going away for the weekend. They... <laughs> we're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell did something unusual last week at the central bank's latest policy meeting. In announcing a pause in the Fed's series of interest rate hikes, Powell celebrated the meaningful decline in inflation. Good news. But he spent a lot of time explaining that he didn't want to risk the good in the economy by leaving interest rates too high for too long. We're aware of the risk that we would hang on too long. You know, we, we know that that's a risk and we're very focused on not making that mistake. Which meant time for a pivot from the Fed. The rate setting committee would consider any policy firming carefully. We added the word any as an acknowledgement that we believe that we are likely at or near the, the peak rate for this cycle. Participants didn't write down additional hikes that we believe are likely, uh, so that's what we wrote down. But participants also didn't want to take the possibility of further hikes off the table. So that's really what we were thinking. But the other thing the Fed was thinking about? Rate cuts, potentially three of them, before the end of next year. That news caused the markets to rally. 
But then confusion has started to set in about the pace and timing of these cuts and if they'd upset the balance of the economy. New York Fed President John Williams joined us on Squawk Box. We aren't really talking about rate cuts right now. We're very focused on the the question in front of us, which, as Chair Powell said, the question is, have we gotten monetary policy to a sufficiently restrictive uh, stance in order to ensure that inflation comes back down to 2%? That's the question in front of us. That's what we've been really thinking about for the past five months, and I think we'll be continuing to think about for some time. And so did Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsbee. The market expectation of the number of rate cuts is greater than what the SEP projection is. So whether that's priced in or not priced in, that is a difference. To add to the wonkiness of saying we're going to cut, but then not wanting to say too much, the central bankers also updated their Summary of Economic Projections. That's the SEP that Goolsby mentioned. It's colloquially known as the dot plot. That's a data viz graph that plots out the likelihood voting members of the Fed Open Market Committee see for changes in interest rate policy. It's a guide, but not a prediction. We got into all of that today with Kevin Warsh, distinguished fellow at the Hoover Institution and a former member of the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors. He served during the financial crisis of 2008. Becky Quick takes things from here. Kevin, it's great to have you here on set. Hey, Becky, great to be here. Let's um, let's talk about what we've been talking about for a week at this point. Um, Jay Powell spoke last week. The markets thought they heard that there were going to be lots of rate cuts coming next year, and it was off to the races. Since then, we've had a parade of Fed officials. Here on this program, we've had John Williams, Austin Goolsby, and others. They all seem to be walking back what Jay Powell said, trying to throw some more caution into this. And telling the markets, basically, um, you're interpreting what this a little bit differently. What, what's your take? So um, I'm thoroughly confused by this discussion, so I don't know how much light I can shed on it. Um, uh, it should have been quite clear from the testimony, from the speech, from the dots that the Fed gave, that they were saying the party is back on and markets took that seriously. You know, they spent most of the last year and a half putting the punch bowl away, locking up the liquor cabinet. And um, a week ago, less than a week ago, they put the punch bowl back out. They told the teenagers they were going away for the weekend. They (laughs) bought some new bottles of alcohol and they somehow are surprised that the party got going again. It's very strange. Um, I suspect they think that markets have now gone too far. But this is an incredibly unproductive discussion about what are they talking about, what's the big issue. They should be having hard discussions about what's happening in the economy. Why have their inflation forecasts been so wrong? Um, What are the drivers of global supply and demand? And instead, we're talking about what they're talking about. Uh, I think it's a very dangerous thing. They should be creating option value. The world is uncertain. Instead, what they did a week ago was tie their own hands behind their back. Okay, let me me run with that analogy a little bit. My take on it was that they maybe thought the teenagers had grown up and were adults and could handle the truth. Because what I heard from Jay Powell was that I'm not really sure where things are headed. Um, And even at the time, we were talking, saying that that's unusual for a Fed chairman to be uh, not more oblique, to kind of say, yeah, we're not really sure where things are headed. The market heard what it wanted to hear. What I heard was, a Fed chairman speaking a little more openly and honestly than we've had in the past. So what I heard was premature triumphalism. What I heard was, hey, we won. 
We finally beat inflation down. What I also heard was, you know, it really was transitory. We didn't really make any mistakes. It just took longer for supply chains to work and the rest. I just don't believe that. I think the reason inflation came down is they finally got the policy rate up. Um, I think what I heard was they think the economy's in great shape. The labor markets are strong and everything's great and that they're gonna get inflation back to target. So markets took that and they said, fabulous news. Um, you know, what I think is most troubling is the asymmetry. When uh, inflation's, in. yeah, when inflation's yeah. running a little below their target by a couple of tenths of percent, they take out the punch bowl. Uh, they spend a year, year and a half trying to show their resolute, making references to Paul Volcker. We still have inflation above 3%, a lot of cross currents in the economy. Uh, hardworking Americans still trying to get take-home pay that is higher than their inflation. They take out the punch bowl again. Uh, listen, I, I don't know where the economy is going to be next year, but neither do they. You know, the Fed's comparative advantage is in the, in the printing press that they've been provided. It's not in their prowess in forecasting. And all this talking strikes me as deeply counterproductive in an uncertain world. I mean, as part of the problem, the dot plots themselves, if you've got to make a guess where things are, um, it, it, it may be lends to too much credence that you believe in those expectations? Because I look at what's happening in the Red Sea right now and wonder if that's going to be something that brings inflation back in a real quick way. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, first of all, the chairman and his committee can decide what to do with the dot plots. As I thought from the outset, they should throw them away. Yeah. Yeah. This forward guidance is deeply unproductive. I really don't know why they continue to be at it. You know, the Red Sea, as you referenced, is one example. Imagine a, a, a new front on the war in the Middle East. Imagine provocations in the South China and East China Sea. Oil prices can go from 70 to 90, in which case they're going to be scrambling. American people will feel more inflation. Inflation expectations can move back up. And so what are they going to do? Race the other side of the boat again? Yeah. You know, listen, it's an uncertain world. Uh, the politics in Washington are a mess, as you've been reporting. The job of the central bank is to be a sober beacon of stability. I suspect that's what they're trying to do in the front page of the Wall Street Journal today. But this looks to me like, uh, like an unnecessary error. Yeah, you're talking about the article by Nick Timoros. I know uh, Joe's got a question. Yeah, too. Kevin, um, they finally had us convinced higher for longer because they said it so many different ways and as stridently as they could. This has not been long. This, I, I looked up long in the dictionary. And this, this, this has not been uh, long. And, and when we had uh, Austin Goldsby on, uh, I, Goldsby, I actually said it, it, I, I, it was posited that we wanted to normalize rates from the financial crisis and from the pandemic. So we wanted to get back to normal, where maybe this is where rates were in a, a, you know, bef before we had these major shocks to the system. So we finally get back there. There's no indication that the economy is weakening. So what is the rationale for moving off being normalized again? That's, that's what I did. But I'll just tell you, someone said, if you use the Taylor rule and you do PCE, you are, it does look like we're tighter than we need to be right now. So maybe some rates would make sense. But um, I, I don't know, it's confounding. It, yeah, I think, I think your last word's the right word. This is very puzzling kind of stuff. Um, they're giving transparency a better, very bad name. I think they don't know, and, I not, and I'm sympathetic to their humility about where the economy should be, 
but to promise, which is effectively what they're doing, that they're going to be cutting rates next year when they don't know the state of the economy is forcing them to tie their own hands behind their back. Recent experience suggests that's a very bad idea. If I had to come up with a single theory to justify what we've witnessed over the last week or so, Joe, it's that they believe what Paul Krugman now seems to believe, which is it really was transitory, in which case rates can go back to zero. This is what markets are so enthused about. Uh, QE can come back on. There are no costs to this. Uh, Listen, at the end of the day, it sure looks to me like Washington's doing everything it can to put foam on the runway. Now, we put foam on the runway in the crisis in 08 when things were coming off the rails. The economy's in pretty good shape, uh, and they're putting foam on the runway to goose the economy in 2024. You think think the Fed, when you say Washington, you think Fed, or you think... Yeah, purely a coincidence it's an election year, Kevin. Purely a coincidence. Well, well, uh, listen, I think think the answer is, is it the Fed or someone else in Washington? My answer is yes. Uh, The Treasury is now issuing T-bills that they did not say they'd be issuing before to take duration out of the market. If I didn't know better, that sounds like QE while the Fed is doing the opposite in QT. Spending a bunch of money that we don't have and borrowing it from overseas to strengthen the economy next year, um, I think they're going to end up with with a hotter economy than if they had been running more prudent policy at a time of full employment. And there are no free lunches. We've we've learned that the hard way. Wall Street is no doubt benefiting from this, but I fear that Main Street, once again, is taking the risks. If all you're doing is living on income instead of assets, they're making a bet with your paycheck next year. There's some people, Kevin, that that think one of the jobs of of the Fed or the Fed chair is is to, I don't know, show some fiscal restraint uh, or or at least imply they'd like to see that from, from fiscal authorities. And this would be a chance for that. The economy, you know, we went up 500 basis points. Economy's still doing pretty well, but we're at 33 trillion. He could nod to that number and say, look, we're not out, you know, we aren't declaring mission accomplished. We got this huge looming problem right here ahead of us. Now's the time for fiscal authorities along with us to start being more responsible. Well, well, I'd say it's okay if the central bank wants to stay out of fiscal policy, but if they're going to weigh into fiscal policy when it's a time that they're encouraging Congress to spend money, then when it's a time for some fiscal restraint, they at least have to be balanced on that. Listen, I'm sympathetic in the following respect, Joe. The goods economy, the economy that's around widgets, that economy is in recession. The services economy is in an expansion, and the government economy is in a boom. So corresponding to that, it's a, it's a complicated picture. If I look overseas, the global economy is in bad shape. Global trade is in bad shape. But in the U.S., we do have services that are doing well. I take it seriously. And the government, of course, is contributing to GDP here. So I don't mean to show up and say, boy, they've got easy answers. I mean to show up and suggest somehow they better not try to predict the future and thereby lock themselves in. Kevin, we just had Don Broughton on speaking about FedEx. Um, In FedEx's numbers, he said air freight numbers really picked up in November around the globe, that this is something that is a little bit of a surprise. I asked him if that matches up with what everybody else is thinking, that the economy is going to slow and we're going to get rate cuts, and he said absolutely not. Yeah, so, so there's a lot of interesting things happening in global trade. Global trade tells me something about where the economy is going to be in three and six months. The number of units that are crossing borders 
China to the U.S., Europe to China, borders inside Europe, boy, they are indicative of a material global slowdown. And that's part of the reason why I would say we're in a goods recession in the U.S. and around the world already. Is it possible there's been a permanent shift to services, uh, that people are treating Europe like a permanent vacation spot, and that uh, the boom that's happening in New York City is indicative of a structural fix? Maybe, but I wouldn't bet on that. And so I think the the FedEx numbers are telling us something. The economy might not be as in the smooth waters that the Fed seemed to suggest the other day. But when it's weird. S- we can't read it the same way either. We can't right. use any of this the same. That's right. Andrew? Kevin, I just wanted to ask on a sort of relative basis, to even when you go back and think about your time at the Federal Reserve, how you actually think broadly just about the U.S. economy on a, on a, on a historical relative basis. Because as I've been listening to you, the truth is I think people who are listening to you would think that the economy is, is in terrible shape. And we can have that debate, obviously. But to me, on a relative basis, now life is relative, you know, there's, there's sort of like almost an Alice in Wonderland situation going on, which is to say that actually, it's, by the numbers, it's actually oddly, shockingly good. Now, we can argue why it, 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 it may be that way in terms of sugar highs and the like. But in terms of just where we are today, what do you think? So where we are today is a function of where policy was six, nine, and 12 months ago. What the Fed should be talking about, is talking about, is where policy is going to be six or nine or 12 months from now. So listen, the state of the economy today, I think, as I mentioned, has a goods recession. I take that seriously. I think that's a risk. The world, the U.S., is in a more fragile place geopolitically than at any moment since the late 1970s. The security and economic commons that created global trade, that created prosperity and peace for most of the post-war era, I don't don't think you have to be uh, Henry Kissinger to know that is all under great threat. So as the central bank sits down to make policy, they need to be aware of those risks, the risks that Becky talked about about oil, risks of a new front in these wars, risks associated with the U.S.'s deterrence policy not working, and so if there, that means anything, it sure sounds to me like the central bank in the U.S. and around the world should be doing a little less talking, a lot more thinking about risks around their central forecast rather than saying everything is swell. You work closely with Stan Druckenmiller. And so from an investor's perspective, trying to take all this and figure out what to do in the markets, um, it sounds like you're thinking the same thing that we've heard from a lot of Fed officials this week, which is the market's reaction does not make sense, does not add up, and is not something that is maybe sound footing. So the market's reaction is the market's reaction. I've been with Stan now for 11 or 12 years. Yeah. We take signals from markets. And when the central bank says the party's going to get started, we need to take that seriously. Uh, huge amounts of liquidity are flowing into the market in the last week. Yeah. Bigger flows into the S&P in the last week than we've seen in a very long time. So for people that are listening at home, it's hard to sit on your hands. The Fed is tempting the party to get started. Financial markets can run for a long time. And I think to the point that Andrew raised before, the financial markets and the real economy, they can diverge for long periods. Um, it's been a heck of a year for the financial markets. It might have been a prudent time for the Fed to sit on their hands. Instead, what they said to the financial markets, is, let's keep this party going. 
What's your um, gut feeling for 2024? I mean, it's hard to make predictions, but how are you feeling about things? So having just spent uh, the last five or 10 minutes telling the Fed not to be in the forecasting business, I hesitate. <laughs> I hesitate to say, oh, well, let me, let me give you my crystal ball. Yeah. What I would say is when I look broadly at markets and I look at the VIX, the measure of volatility in the equity markets, as low as it's been in at least a half a dozen years, and I think about what are the risks in the world, there's a real divergence in those. We are entering a risky territory geopolitically, a risky territory in terms of what's gonna win. Will the goods economy recession pervade the rest? Will the services economy expansion pervade the rest? I think it's very uncertain. Um, my own judgment about the economy is the economy, in spite of the Fed, deciding that they're gonna be cutting rates next year and almost redoing QE, I think the real economy is going to feel tougher a year from now than it does now. And if I look overseas, there's a harbinger of that. Hmm. Kevin, it's a tough medicine, the message to swallow at this point, but we always appreciate seeing you, having you in here and getting um, your insights to this stuff. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Becky. Look forward to being back. Okay, thanks. Next on Squawk Pod, Rite Aid's surveillance stumble, how a facial recognition they thought would help ended up hurting thousands of customers. Watch what you buy, because who you're buying from is watching you. I have never bought just for men. I want to go on the record and say that. You're more concerned about fessing up to that than toenail fungus? Adult diapers, never bought any of those. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at T-Mobile.com slash now. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Three, two, up and Andrew, cue. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kern. Rite Aid has to stop using facial recognition for the next five years. It's part of a privacy settlement with the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, which said that the pharmacy chain misused the technology to mistakenly tag consumers as shoplifters. It said Rite Aid used a facial recognition system at stores in large cities, including New York, Los Angeles, and Baltimore, without notifying customers. The system used low-quality images, often taken from security cameras, to create a database of alleged shoplifters and would then send alerts to employees when it flagged a match to a customer entering the store. The FTC said that that system generated thousands of improper matches, often involving black, Latino, and female customers. That led to employees following customers around the store, calling the police or falsely accusing people of shoplifting. Rite Aid agreed not to use that technology for five years. Oh, big of them. And delete the images that it has collected so far. But guys, I think this really brings up um, some of the problems that have come with this. I don't know if you've seen that the Dolan family has gotten in trouble with Madison Square Garden for using facial recognition to ban people that they didn't like from being allowed to go right. in the building. Right. And I was thinking about it. Whole Foods, when you check out at Whole Foods, they're taking video of you the whole time. You can see your face like looking back at you with the registers where you're you know, checking yourself out with some of these things. Whole Foods, I'm fine. I mean... It might be a they little. They would accuse me of shoplifting. I, I, well, no, I might be embarrassed if I was buying like I don't know kale Depends. or something. But drugstores, 
<laughs> just should not be a place where people are watching what you're doing. And, and I was just trying to come up with how many things I wouldn't want people to know that I'm shopping for. Drugstore. I mean, I go I, in. I will. I will admit, you you top line me about this, and I, yeah, I, I, did. I, I will admit that I, when I go into some things for the for the let's for, list some. Like CVS, toe fungus, oh, adult God. adult diapers, diapers, Viagra, preparation Hemorrhoids. H, just there. for men. Um, Pregnancy tests. There's a million things you would not want to have come back to you. And I will admit there are things that I've bought that I do not put my phone number into the that's database what I mean. because I don't want them sending me the ads for coupons Stay for more of this drug stuff. Stay drugstore stuff. Stay away from... <laughs> I don't wear a mask anywhere, but I, and when I go in the drugstore, I pull the hat down and wear, not- and wear a mask because I don't want people knowing who that is that's buying all these embarrassing... And I, I, just for the record, I don't have toe fungus. I've never had toe fungus. Preparation H. Oh, you said that compound W. <laughs> I like those. But here's, Go ahead. Guys, if, yeah. if two things. Mm-hmm. I assume, I know Becky does, Joe may not, but we all order stuff they, on Amazon. If you ever look through yeah. the search history, uh, both your search history, right. actually, by the way, search history of anything Horrible. on Google, just do your search history right. on Google or Oof. what you bought at Amazon over the last decade. And they know exactly what you're doing. Plus, what I was going to say is, is I don't know if you saw these. Oh, go ahead. Well, but there are these new new Amazon stores where, we've talked about this before, where you literally walk in, uh, put your phone uh, uh, on the register as you're, not on the register, but like on the the door as you're walking in. And then the whole thing is just, uh, has cameras everywhere. I mean, millions of cameras. And it's looking at everything you're buying. And you literally walk out. But this is, I, I think the exactly writing case is different. Like, look, we've all given up on our privacy, and you're right. If you're using any of these online apps, if you're putting your phone number in for customer loyalty rewards, you're giving it all up anyway. They're, they're watching these things. The problem with Rite Aid was these were low-resolution images. They were accusing people of being shoplifters and getting it wrong, which no. is completely slanderous, libelous. Not libelous because you're not printing it, but slanderous. Mm. And then f- having employees follow them around the stores. Their problem was, I guess, the images weren't high quality enough. But, yeah, I guess we've all given up our right to privacy. We have. Looking at the, the cameras, looking at the online uh, tracking Google, of everything we do. Anyway. Every dateline. I mean, the guy... What are the best bone saws on the market right now? Oh, uh, you that's know, how they what, catch what, people, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah, but but they always look up stuff. You know, it's like <laughs> you can't believe it. After we had the, the guy who wrote the book that go, that Google is the new. Do you God. remember we the? Tell, uh, we tell Google everything, all our. Secrets. There was a funny like Brad Pack movie where the kids going in to buy, you know, Trojans or something, and he he buys fifteen things. Oh yeah, and I got this and this and this and it's all, it. He doesn't need any of them. You know, candy. Right. He's got this and, and then finally, oh, oh, and these and these. But that's what it reminds me of. You heard me mention Just for Men. I have never bought Just for Men. I want to go on the record and say that, too. I've never done that. No hair dye. You're more concerned about fessing up to that than toenail fungus? Adult, adult diapers. Never bought any of those. But um, you He's know. in Penelope for those. Yeah, there's still... Yeah, right, right. She goes, coming up, no, thank you. <laughs> Penelope, uh, can you pick this up for me while you're there? Yeah, would you just... Uh, yeah. CNBC's All-America survey taking a look at the nation's most famous mega billionaires, and there's only one who stands out with shining stars. Steve Leisman joins us with the results. Steve, I I was just joking that we should have been teasing this all morning long so that all of our viewers could uh, find out if they were at the top of this list. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, we didn't ask about all of our viewers, but we did ask about some of them. 
Becky, you know, we, we drive their cars, we use their software and social media sites, we invest in their stocks, but what do Americans really think of America's richest business billionaires? And we got some surprising results from the CNBC All-America Economic Survey. Take a look here. Only one of the leading billionaires we asked about has a positive net rating. That is approval minus disapproval. Warren Buffett, he's 30 to 15 approval, disapproval, and it spreads across demographic groups. We'll look at that in a second. Elon Musk, he's at zero. He gets there with sharp and divisive feelings on both sides. And that's all the way down to Jeff Bezos to minus 18 and Zuckerberg at minus 32 who no one seems to like. Uh, nearly every demographic group has a positive view of the Oracle from Omaha, Colin Buffett, the beloved, except people with incomes below 30,000. They're just minus three, which is not really that bad. The standouts include men aged 50 and older, Democrats, uh, those with more than 50,000 invested in the stock market and incomes above 75,000. Musk, on the other hand, he divides the nation very, very equally, actually. Women are minus 17, men are plus 17. Biden voters, minus 44. Trump voters, plus 44. In the Northeast, he's minus 13. In the South, he's plus 10. Musk does a little better among ex-users coming in at plus 9. Zuckerberg, on the other hand, despite his stock being up the most of this year of any of those we looked at, He's disliked across the board. Just a question of who dislikes him more. Democrats are minus 19, Republicans minus 49. Men, 18 to 49, they have a negative, a more negative view than women who still have a negative view, uh, 18 to 49, minus 23%. The Northeast, they don't like him. In the Midwest, they don't like him more. The group with the lowest net support are Republicans, 50 and older for Zuckerberg. So, hey, we thought maybe the financial elite, those with high incomes and more than 50,000 in the market, they would be kinder to this group. After all, they've made this group a lot of money. Not true. Didn't happen. There are only small differences with this group in the broader public views. Uh, you can see there's Zuckerberg still minus 30. Musk and Bezos actually do a little worse. Gates does a bit better from minus 3 to plus 15. Gates and Buffett both a little better with this group. So even returns more than 100% this year on, on Tesla stock for Musk, more than 191% for Zuckerberg could not buy love, Becky. Back to you. I didn't know who was going to be at the top of that list, uh, but this is like a Q rating. Like you figured it out the same way. Yeah, pr pretty much a Q rating. I guess Zuckerberg suffers from, I don't know. I mean, we, we have another story we'll do later today showing a lot of people use Facebook they, and they use it every day. Many, many more people using Facebook than use uh, X and, uh, or Twitter. Um, and, and also the... Um, uh, uh, I guess the, the film for Zuckerberg didn't help him. I'm not sure what, but I, and I don't know if it matters to these people, but that those are the ratings, you know. Uh, it wouldn't matter Buffett, to me if I had that much money. Well Joe wants to play. I can board. see him trying to jump in here. Plus 15 is, they Go don't ahead, like Joe. any of them. They don't like any of them. Plus 15 not, is not great for Warren. And it's amazing that Musk no, is Warren in. No, Warren comes in 30, 30, 30 to 15. 15 with, 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 that's what I mean. The, there are not, large percentages, Joe. Go ahead. And, and no, it, that's not, you know, that's not, people don't like, people do not like billionaires. And for Musk to be at zero with Zuckerberg, Bezos, and all the others at sharply negative, that's saying something in and of itself right there. That shows you he, he has fans. Steve, yeah, he has yeah. a lot of fans, whereas the other ones just, you know, it's, it's very, right. very strange, very weird. But Steve, the thing that, that surprised well, me was Amazon, if you do the surveys around Amazon, it's one of the most beloved companies in America, right. oddly enough. So what's the problem? And so how do, how do well, you, is he disassociated with that, you think? On the Jeff Bezos he, part He of this? seems to be, hold on, Andrew, because I have some numbers here. Bezos is still, he's worse. When we ask 
you know, we asked about shopping this year. And when we look at people right. who shop on Amazon, uh, he, he's just actually a little bit better. He's minus 11 versus minus 18 among people who do most of their holiday shopping on Amazon. So I think that's an interesting point you're making, Andrew, that he's dissociated. I'll just make one other point. I've always had a theory, right? You can be two of you can be two of three. You can be loved, rich, or famous, but you can't be all three unless maybe you're I don't know. Taylor Swift is the only person who can maybe be loved, rich, <laughs> and famous. She's had to deal with the haters too. She's written songs about it. Steve, right? That's true. Thank you. And another AI headline for you: Britain's Supreme Court ruling against a man who tried to register patents for inventions created by his artificial intelligence system. The patents were refused by Britain's Intellectual Property Office because they said an inventor has to be a human or a company, not a machine. The UK Supreme Court unanimously rejected the man's appeal, saying that the law, under that law, an inventor must be a natural person. Though the court did say it wasn't actively weighing, it was, wasn't actively weighing the question of whether the term inventor should be expanded. We used to make jokes about, we were just talking about Mark Zuckerberg and... Uh... Remember, Jim said he couldn't pass. Kramer said maybe it'd be tough to pass a Turing test where, where you can where you can prove you're a human. So uh, it's happened. I mean, Zuckerberg got some patents, didn't he? It just reminded me of something, and, and that is, do you remember how smart Watson was? How does that differ yeah. from AI? But then you remember he was going to win Final Jeopardy, and they asked he lost him, because what the, U.S. Because city? Watson, airport. Watson was wasn't Canada. smart. Well, he wasn't, but he was very smart. But they said, but, no, but the Turing test, what U.S. city was, has an airport they, named after a World War II hero? Yeah, and he the guy, from, he came up with Toronto. With, with, so, was it Toronto so or glar- Ontario, yeah, no, somewhere? Toronto, so yeah. glaringly wrong. But no, he, he beat everybody like else. He can beat everybody at, at chess. But that was a yeah, while. Would this one get it right? This one would get it right. AI would get that right. For sure. Well, it depends on what well, AI was it, trained I, on. If it, it's garbage in, garbage out for all these things. If you don't train it properly, my guess though, is AI would have gotten that right because they'd know to look yep. uh, for something a little bit more. But AI can be fooled too if you're training it on on, on information that's incorrect. Right. Exactly. It's, it's all, everything's gigo, I guess. Yeah. Andrew? Well, but I, I think the truth was that Watson, unfortunately, was a, a sort of a grand if-then program. It wasn't. It wasn't right. genuine. It wasn't genuine AI. AI um, Good at chess. In the in the context of what we've been talking about. Right. Yeah. It was more of a massive catalog with big computing power behind it. Um, AI. You're supposed to be able to figure out things that you haven't even been taught directly. Even facts you haven't been taught directly, you should be able to then assume, make assumptions to go to the next level. It's amazing. Though. I right. mean, and we're in the fir- like with top of the first with with AI. It's, it is. Oh, yeah. It is a little scary. It is. But, yeah. Where we're headed. Uh, but there's also a lot of promise, you know, especially when you look at some of the medical discoveries and things. There's a lot of right. hope. That, Drug that discovery. Yep. That. Mm-hmm. That's the pod for today. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to follow this podcast right now, wherever you're listening, so you never miss a daily dose of Squawk. Squawk Box airs on TV every weekday morning on CNBC with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in at 6 a.m., listen to Squawk Pod anytime, and we'll meet you right back here tomorrow. Now we are clear. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. 
How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.